Linda Davis is feeling much better. Uh, I know I'd ask you to pray for her, and and uh, things are going much better for her. Let's see if I can get this thing on there. She did give me a scare, though. I knew that she was supposed to go for a medical procedure on Monday or Tuesday, and uh, I called her on Wednesday or Thursday, and uh, I got the message on there that her phone had been disconnected, which immediately scared me, because I thought if she went in for a medical procedure and now her cell phone's disconnected, maybe she hadn't made it. Uh, so I and I didn't have a number for her son. We I finally figured out how I might be able to track him down and did. So he gave her a message that I was trying to reach her, and uh, so she calls me back. You talk about a relief to hear she was still alive. So uh, she is feeling quite a bit better. Uh, she seems quite a bit stronger. Uh, we both commented on the phone that she's getting mean again, and that means she's feeling better. So uh, that's kind of like it was with my wife, Marla. I mention her probably more often than I ever have, but she's very, very much on my mind, so things come up. But people would think she was angry sometimes, and even I would think she was angry sometimes. And no, she wasn't angry at all. She was just being herself. And I told her many times that there's no... If you think Marla's angry, she's not. If she is angry, there'll be no doubt. You won't think it. You'll know it. So it, <laughs> that's, just, that's the way her personality was, and Linda's a little bit that way in some respects. So I'm just happy to report she's doing well and feeling better and... and uh, continue to pray, all of us, for each other, because we all need it, but her immediate uh, difficulty is somewhat mitigated at least. Let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes, we're at chapter 10, I want to finish this today because I have another direction I want to go uh, next week, and I think it will be very, very uh, appropriate for what is going on and where we are right now, so I want to get to that, and we've been on this uh, for quite some time, so I want to finish it up. We've got three chapters, so we'll we'll buzz through it, <coughs> give it the attention it deserves, but uh, I will finish it up today, so be prepared for getting out about four. Chapter 10. <coughs> Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking favor, or savor, I mean. Uh, apothecary means a mixture or a compound, uh, like putting perfumes and various things together to make a perfume. You can have something that you've made to smell really sweet, but if the flies get in it and begin to rot, uh, it loses its savor, it loses its good smell. So he says, so does a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. He doesn't say a, a great deal of folly causes your reputation to go away. Just a little bit. It doesn't take much. You might have a pretty good size uh, little tub of ointment that you've made up. 
And it doesn't take but one or two flies in there to kind of spoil the effect, does it? So we, we can live in such a way that we might have a good reputation for wisdom and honor. All it takes is maybe one little mistake or say the wrong thing, and all of that goes away. People change their whole attitude toward you. It's, it's sad in a way that it is that way, but uh, people are that way. It doesn't take very much to, to turn them negative, to turn them away, to change their opinion. Now, it's very, very hard to build a good opinion, but it doesn't, it's really easy to cause it to turn negative. It doesn't take much. It's a testimony that people are uh, frivolous, that people are uh, surface, and they cannot, for the most part, analyze the good and the bad and realize there's more good here than bad. But, no, we, we'd rather go ahead and uh, kick somebody while they're down even if it's just a small thing or even a temporary thing. Sometimes people are that fickle is the word I was looking for. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. Now that's assuming that he's right-handed, of course. Uh, your right hand, generally speaking, for most of the population, is the hand that you favor. It's the one that's the strongest, the most coordinated, the one you can do things well with, whereas your left hand, for most people, uh, they can barely do anything with it, it seems. It's there to kind of help the right hand get its job done. But the right hand is what you write with. It's what you do most things with. I'm left-handed, so I've always, I always take exception to these things. Uh, mine should be at my left hand because that's the one that I do most things with. But for 90% of the population, this certainly fits the way he's putting it. A fool's heart is at his left, which simply saying uh, his heart's over there where the hand isn't very skilled. It can't do much in comparison to the other one. So a, a man's, if he's wise, uh, he has the capacity to be able to do things much better, like a right hand can do much better than the left. But a fool's heart, he can't do much with it. It just kind of goes where it wants to and can't be controlled very well. And uh, he needs to focus. He needs to come to have wisdom and understanding instead of just floating through life in a, an unorganized, inept, inefficient way, dysfunctional, if you will. Yes, also, when he that is a fool walks by the way, his wisdom fails him, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Now, you don't see many people that will literally tell you, I am a fool. If you call them a fool, uh, they will fight with you. But what he's saying is, as a fool goes through life, as he walks along the highway, the byway, the path, as he walks through life, he doesn't have the wisdom to know how to do things and do them right. So he's continually making stupid mistakes. 
Now, if he understood better how things work, if he understood the Bible, which is the instruction book on how humans should work efficiently, what conduct they want to have, if they should have success, if you'll pay attention to it, then uh, he can walk through life in a much more synchronized, efficient manner. But a fool walking along uh, tells everybody by his actions he's a fool. He's not going to say it verbally very often. Occasionally someone will say, I, make a, I made a foolish mistake. But they won't tell you, I am a fool. Uh, there's a difference there. But we prove it by the way we live, by the things we do, the indiscretions, the, the mistakes we make. And that's what tells people. Verse 4, if the spirit of the ruler rise up against you, you do something or say something or have a look on your face that causes someone in charge, and it could be at work, it could be in the family, it could be at recreation, it could be uh, the church, uh, where, whatever, when somebody who is a manager or in control or in a position of authority uh, has something against you, his his danders up, if you will. Leave not your place, for yielding pacifies great offenses. If you have a little uh, chip on your shoulder, a little ridge of vanity, ego, and pride that you let come up when you're being corrected or chastised or criticized or whatever, all that does is make the one in charge even more adamant that you have a problem. So it's better to swallow your pride, your ego, and your vanity, and yield. And uh, if people see a yielding attitude, a repentant attitude, I'm sorry if I offended, if I made a mistake, uh, or even if I appeared to make one, I'm sorry, and sincerely mean it, it pacifies a great deal of anger and frustration. But if you rise up with your human nature, it makes it worse. You know what? We don't have an ego to defend, do we? Do we have an ego to defend? No. God hates pride of any kind. Ego is self. Ego is I will be justified, I will be right, I will get in my way, nobody's going to tell me what to do. That's ego, that's pride. It's not humility. And God hates pride. He hates ego. So if we rise up against God, we're in trouble. We don't usually dare to do that, but we will certainly rise up against people or someone in charge, whatever that authority might be. We tend to bristle against it, to a hair on our neck stand up. We do not like to be corrected. He says, yield. Don't let your vanity and your ego get away with you. We're, we're not supposed to have one anyway, so why defend ourselves? There is an evil which I have seen under the sun as an error which proceeds from the ruler. There's something that goes on pretty regularly as human beings under the sun as we go through life day by day 
that's what under the sun means, uh, as an error which proceeds from a ruler. I'm not sure exactly what he's saying there, but uh, we criticize rulers. That's been the great American, one of the great American rights, at least we think it's a right, to criticize our rulers. Uh, whoever's in charge, whether it be the foreman on the job, whether it be the president of the U.S. or whoever, uh, we like to stand around the water cooler and criticize. And that's an evil uh, under the sun. Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in low place. So you can have people who are in dignified positions, and this is partly what he's referring to, I think, in the verse above. Uh, and yet, there is no dignity there because the person is not up to the job that they have. And he says, I've seen the rich sit in low place. So, uh, rich people can be base people. They don't live up to their standing or their wealth in any case. So he uh, emphasizes that in verse 7. I have seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. So you can have somebody who's rich and in a great position of authority, and yet his, his real standing should be that of a servant, not somebody in charge because his character does not match up to what position he holds. And then he had seen princes walking as servants upon the earth. So here's someone who may be a servant. They may be in low esteem, live on the wrong side of the tracks and not have much. And yet they may have very strong character and do well, obey God, say, for instance. And yet they're not looked upon as important. So... In character, they might be a prince, whereas in the eyes of men and their standing in society, they're nothing. So, you see, good people in bad positions and bad people in good positions. Verse 8, He that digs a pit shall fall into it, and whoso breaks an hedge, a serpent shall bite him. Why do you dig a pit? Well, they used to dig pits and stick sharpen sticks up in the bottom to cap and then cover it over with a light covering so that when an animal stepped on it, he would fall in and be impaled or killed uh, for food. And sometimes they did that for their enemies, make a trap that they would fall into. <coughs> and if you break a hedge, a serpent will bite you. So why would you break a hedge? Why is the hedge there? The hedge is there for privacy. It's there for protection. It's there uh, as a wall or as a fence to guard your property. might just be a planted hedge, or it could be of, like I've seen uh, in Africa, sharp sticks set in the ground sticking up several feet so that if a lion tries to, <coughs> to jump over, he might rip his guts out. If you break a hole in that, you have wrong motives, in other words. You're trying to 
<coughs> steal or kill or take. So it is not an honorable reason that you would dig a pit or to break a hedge. <coughs> and sooner or later, if you keep doing those things, you're going to get in trouble and be destroyed as a result of it. You dig through somebody's hedge often enough, somebody's liable to shoot you sooner or later because they don't want you coming in their private area. And he gives another couple of examples. Whoever removes stones shall be hurt therewith. Where stones set. They used to use them as land corners, as markers. And uh, we're told in the Old Testament, I think Deuteronomy, not to remove the landmarks because that tells where the property corner is. So if you remove those, sooner or later you're going to get hurt by it. <laughs> you're trying to steal. You're trying to gain an extra 10 or 20 feet or whatever it might be. And you'll get comeuppance. You'll, you'll get hurt by your thievery. He that cleaves wood shall be endangered thereby. If you use an axe and you cut wood, uh, you need to be careful. And I think he's saying this about anything you do. Uh, the others were above were things that you do that are evil. If you're cleaving wood, it's probably to build a fire or something, which is a good thing. But even if you're doing good things, you need to do them carefully. Because you can cut your foot with an axe or cut your leg pretty easily. It doesn't take much. And chainsaws are even worse. You can remove your leg much faster with them than even with an axe. So we have to be careful with what we use and how we use it, for good or for bad. And ten is a word of wisdom. If the iron be blunt and he do not wet the edge, then must he put to more strength. But wisdom is profitable to direct. You can go through life as a blunt instrument, and uh, you don't cut through the baloney, you don't learn how to do something efficiently, you just keep banging away. If you've ever used uh, a dull axe or a dull garden hoe, uh, you know what this means. You have to put the energy there because it doesn't slice or cut easily. But if you've got enough smarts about you, you'll go sharpen it, and you won't have to work quite so hard, you'll get more work done. But sometimes it's hard to teach us. I remember a movie we watched in college back in the 60s. Uh, John Goddard had gone all over the world. He was an adventurer and filmed things. I think I've used this example before, but uh, they were, I think it was in New Guinea or somewhere, and the natives were out there. It might have been Africa, I forget. But they had a stick, or maybe it was a rock, and they were trying to beat these saplings, small trees down, with that rock so that they could use it to build their huts or whatever they had in mind that day. So they were beat on that with the rock until they finally beat the bark off, they beat the inside until they finally got the tree down. And they showed this, the whole thing of the, the native doing that, and then John handed him an axe. Well, no, he didn't hand him the axe, he took the axe, and with one stroke, cut a sapling down. And then he cut two or three more down to show the native how that worked. You can take this, and just like that, you can have that instead of beating on it for three hours with that rock. 
So he looked at it, held it in his hand, threw it away, picked up the rock, and started beating on the sapling again. That's what he knew. That's all he knew. He wasn't ready to learn things beyond what he knew. We talk about southern rednecks, I guess, that way sometimes, too. Uh, they have their way. This is the way we do it. Don't teach us anything else or try to tell us anything else. I don't mean necessarily to pick on southerners, but that's kind of the way the uneducated southerner is depicted. And there's a, sometimes a certain amount of truth to it, but certainly not at all, not all the time. Uh, stupidity knows no bounds. Uh, it can be any race, any time, anywhere, any people. Anyway, uh, use your brain instead of just your brawn, and uh, you'll be a whole lot better off, physical or spiritual uh, circumstances. Verse 11, Surely the serpent will bite without enchantment, and a babbler or a big talker is no better. Uh, there are people who enchant snakes. Uh, we're all familiar with the cobras in India, and they play the flute and sway back and forth, and the, the cobra follows them back and forth. And if they quit blowing the flute, they might get bit. Uh, without being enchanted, the serpent bites. And the same is true of someone who does an awful lot of talking, a babbler, uh, is no different. Uh, in many words, is much sin. So if you just babble a lot, uh, you're going to say things that are going to be hurtful and not good and that will bite. It's just a multitude of words will do that. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. Uh, wise, judicious, helpful. But the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. He'll be his own undoing. You babble enough foolishness long enough and you'll undo yourself. I've used the example of, of uh, I've seen this happen, where guys would go out maybe and shoot a deer out of season or something, uh, or a doe when it could have been a buck even in season, whatever they might their infraction is. And they go into a bar and they have three or four drinks and first thing you know, they're telling everybody in the bar this wonderful thing they've done. And then somebody gets up and goes and calls the game warden. So, real simple uh, cause and effect there. Because you opened your big fat mouth, <laughs> you were caught out. And you swallow yourself up. You get yourself in trouble with your mouth. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is mischievous madness. So, somebody who babbles foolishly, even when he first starts, uh, foolishness comes out, because he's perhaps not got a brain in his head, uh, hasn't read, hasn't studied, hasn't meditated, hasn't come to learn. So, there's a lot of foolishness there. It says that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive him far from it. Uh, so, you have somebody maybe who has not taught, or not been taught anything but foolishness. Parents didn't straighten him out, so he grows up and still foolish. 
So when he starts talking, you know that there's probably some foolish, stupid stuff going to start coming out. <clears throat> but when you get to the end of it, it turns into mischievous madness. Real stupidity and perhaps even criminality. Mischievous is something that is designed to hurt someone else or take from someone else or cause someone else trouble and grief. So you might start out being kind of foolish, but then it can cause all kinds of serious problems for someone else. The words of a whisperer, she, uh, separate even chief friends, is another proverb that fits that. <clears throat> a fool also is full of words. He has lots of words, or multiplies words, my margin says. He's just one word after another. A man cannot tell what shall be, and what shall be after him, who can tell him? You can be full of words, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, but you don't know what tomorrow brings. You might not even be alive tomorrow for all these things you're fantasizing and deciding you're going to do and how things are going to be so much better and, and uh, you have all these plans and ideas and thoughts and fantasies uh, and they're not going to turn out that way. I heard a song, uh, I think it was yesterday, that I'd never heard before. It was entitled Wrong. That was the name of the song. And uh, the singer went through and, and showed that he had had a an idyllic, almost perfect wedding, and they had dreams and hopes and ideas about how things would be in their lives and how they would treat each other and how wonderful it was going to be and how they'd raise a family and and uh, on and on and on about how great things were going to be. Then he says, wrong. <laughs> and then he goes on in the next verse and says, well, I've met another woman. And I've grown up, and I've matured, and I'm wiser now, and things are going to be better. And uh, I'll treat her better than I did the last one. And I'm going to be a good man and straightforward, and I'm going to be all these things wrong. <laughs> so that one didn't work out either. So we can be full of words, but we don't know what's really going to be. We might just be wrong. We can fantasize what we want, but making it happen is a totally different matter. And if you're going to live the kind of life that will produce happiness, contentment, security, peace, and the things that need to be, uh, you're going to have to consider God's words very deeply. Because He's the only one that knows how to be a human being successfully. He's the only one that knows. He's the only one with the formula. You can read a thousand books about how to be a better person, about how to get your self-esteem up and how to be proud and help yourself. But those people do not know God and they do not know His ways. They may have come across some good principles somewhere here and there. But the only one who knows how to live a life successfully is the one who made life. And his book better be the one you read. It's the only book you really need on earth is this Bible because it contains the words of the Creator and it is the instruction book for human life. It's the only one that really counts and the one that you can trust to be actually accurate. A lot of people get a lot of ideas about rearing children, for instance. And they come up with these stupid ideas 
And they don't work. Look around at the world we live in and the children we produce and how they are. And then check what they've been reading as to how to raise kids. And you'll find out that people do not know. But the Bible is full of wisdom on how to do it if we learn how to follow it properly. We don't know what's coming. Verse 15, The labor of the foolish wearies every one of them because he knows not how to go to the city. He doesn't even know how to get from here to there. Uh, So the things he goes through, the things that are burdensome or full of labor or trouble and difficulty, uh, the foolish wearies everybody. Do you ever know anybody that just wore you out? Because you watch them go through this and that and the other thing, and they never seem to learn. And then they're in trouble again. Oh, woe is me. Feel sorry for me. Well, when are you going to grow up and do things and be responsible? Then maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes eat in the morning. Now, they did have, at times, even in Israel, people by death of the father would become a king at a very tender young age. Uh, But I think this is talking more in terms of a king who is immature, hasn't grown up, isn't responsible, and acts like a child. Goes by his emotions and his feelings and not judgment and wisdom. And your princes eat... Oh, wait a minute. And your princes eat in the morning. They get up to eat. That's what they like to do. There's another place, in fact, it even mentions it here, but there's another place I'm thinking of where it talks about uh, not for the rulers not to rise up early to drink. Even Even in our society, we say, well, is it noon yet? That's kind of the... The idea, or is it 5 o'clock before they have their drink? It's got to be at least noon for some and at least 5 o'clock for some. And then, of course, they say, well, it's 5 o'clock somewhere, so we can go ahead anyway. But this is talking about the extreme of that, where the, the reason they live is to eat and to drink. And that does not make for good leadership and, and rulership of a land. Immature and just following their appetites. What does a child do? They want fed, and they want fed now. They want something to drink, they want it now. Anything they want, they want it now. They haven't learned patience. And you can grow up and still be governed by your appetites instead of by what is good for you and right for you. And we're all there to one degree or another. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles. And your princes eat in due season for strength and not for drunkenness. So we, we eat in order to have the strength to carry out our jobs, to carry out our responsibilities, uh, so we are strong and healthy. And there are those who just eat because they like to eat and drink because they like to drink. And uh, anybody that's skinny usually persecutes anybody that's five pounds more than they are because they'll use that expression, I, li- I, I eat to live, not live to eat. So they condemn anybody who 
uh, eats a little more than they do. That's not really what it's talking about for us to get self-righteous about. Uh, but our goals and our purposes in life are greater than just eating and drinking, and we need fuel. So we are, have the energy to do what we need to be doing. Verse 18, By much laziness the building decays, and through idleness of the hands the house drops through. You don't fix things, they get worse. Stitch in time saves nine, in other words. But we're too lazy to do the stitch, and we wait till the roof falls in before we decide that we'll go fix it. The roof doesn't need fixed. It's not raining in, is it? Well, it might be tomorrow. We might have to fix it today when it's not raining. But we have all kinds of excuses. He uses a proverb back in the book of Proverbs. There's a lion in the street. I can't go to work. I mean, if I'm just if I'm walking to work, the lion might kill me. So I better stay here in the house and eat and drink. Nineteen. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes a merry heart. But money answers all things. On a human level. Uh, People want money because money gets them what they want. <laughs> that is, in terms of physical things. Money will not buy happiness or contentment. Uh, money itself can even cause more greed and discontent than not having any. But generally speaking, uh, if the money is there to do what you want to do, that answers a lot of your issues, answers, answers a lot of your questions and your troubles. You can pay the bills with money. You can't pay the bills with a feast and wine. So money takes care of a lot of things. But it's not the end-all, be-all. Christ said, don't seek those things. Seek treasure in heaven. <coughs> Curse not the king. Know not in your thoughts. Curse not the rich in your bedchamber. For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which has wings shall tell the matter. People say, well, how did you know that? A little birdie told me is our expression. That's This verse is where that expression came from. A little birdie told me. You were thinking something. You said something. Uh, bird flew over, and I got the message. Well, it's... it's uh, it's something that people sense a lot of times. Sometimes they'll hear things you've said <clears throat> repeated by someone else. Sometimes just the look on your face shows the thoughts that are in your head. And uh, don't we know, by and large, who likes us and who doesn't? If we're paying any attention. Uh, if people come to you, they talk to you, they seem to like you, they laugh at your jokes, or whatever, uh, you feel uh, that they care about you. But if somebody's sullen and will hardly give you the time of day, it becomes pretty obvious they're not too enamored with you. But he says, you can't hide <clears throat> the things that you're thinking and feeling from someone. Uh, it just gets communicated. Now, no, a birdie of the air does not come and uh, peep in your ear and tell you what somebody's thinking. But it comes that easy. It comes 
automatically, naturally. Because your face and your eyes reflect an awful lot, and your tongue reflects an awful lot of what's in your heart. So, don't curse the king, not even in your thoughts. Keep, keep your thoughts right. Didn't God tell us there in Romans uh, to honor those who have positions of authority and not to talk them down? Of course, in the church, roast preachers, one of their favorite topics has been throughout the years. But uh, religious authorities or whatever, we need to be very, very careful of our thoughts. That's why Philippians 4, 8 says to think on the positive side of things, not the negative side of things. Uh, we need to be upbeat and uh, positive in our approach. Consider your thoughts. Consider the things that you say. We need to be thinking about that and analyzing it. Is what I'm talking about right now encouraging? Is it uplifting? Is it building somebody up and helping people have a better attitude toward that person? Or is what I'm saying making the person I'm saying it to think less of that individual? Consider this scripture very, very deeply. Is what you're saying building somebody something up, building somebody up, or tearing them down? Most of our conversations that are in a negative vein are tearing down in some form or another. I don't care if you've been negative all your life. Fix it. Change it. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? To him that remains negative will I give the kingdom of God. No, to him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. So if we think negative, we got to get over it at some point. God is not going to have negativity in His kingdom. When you have no sorrow, no pain, no death, no hurt, then nobody's talking negative, right? Because when people are talking negative, there is sorrow, there is pain, there is hurt feelings, there is depression and frustration. That's the human realm. But in the kingdom of God... There will be no negative talk. It will not be allowed. Now, we're going to have our minds totally changed so that we think in positive terms. You will not have a down-pulling human nature at that point. But in the meantime, we have a nature that is negative and puts down. That is our nature. Some have it worse than others in that particular area. <clears throat> Some people do have a fairly positive approach to life and people, and others, uh, bah humbug is their attitude toward people in life. But if you find that you have that tendency, and everybody has at least some of it, we're supposed to overcome it. We're supposed to change it, not just keep blabbing on about the mistakes, the errors, the deficiencies of other people. The bird of the air will certainly carry it to God, and he'll carry it to other people. Chapter 11, then, cast your bread upon the waters, for you shall find it after many days. Now, 
you've probably seen bread floating in water. Uh, it doesn't do very well. It kind of gets soggy and then sinks and it's worthless. Well, what he means is, give your bread to others. Help others. Uh, water's flow is the analogy there. So, if, if you drop it on the water, it's going to be carried away by the current, but it's going to come back someday. Now, let's see that that's what he means. Verse 2, give a portion to seven and also to eight, <clears throat> for you know not what evil shall be upon the earth. So be generous, be giving. Uh, cast your bread out there where it doesn't appear that it might do much good. Well, that's where the analogy is. You throw bread in water and uh, it gets soggy sinks and it doesn't do any good. So he's saying, give your bread to this one, to that one, to seven, even eight. Pass it out, even where it looks like it isn't going to do any good, but get soggy and wet and come apart and be worthless. And most of what you do for others tends to be that way, doesn't it? Some people won't even say thank you if you help them. Not grateful. <laughs> but he says, give it anyway, because you don't know what evil will come, and you may not have any bread one of these days, and maybe that that you gave others, they will have compassion on you as a result. They'll say, well, so-and-so's having trouble. You know, he helped me one time, and I'm going to go and help him, you know. They can come back and do some good later on, even though it seems to be wasted, thrown in the creek. It might come back to help. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. It's a natural thing that occurs. If the tree fall toward the south or toward the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will be. Once it blows over, it isn't going to get up and move. That's the way things are. It's the way it is. So, there's some things that just don't change. There are natural cycles that occur. And helping others, uh, if you do that, might be that they fell in the right direction, or it rained in the right place, that it comes back to help you when you have a need. But if you don't help others then what incentive will they have when you're down to help you? He that observes the wind shall not sow, and he that regards the clouds shall not reap. That's excuses for laziness that we read about up in the previous chapter, verse 18. Oh, the wind's blowing today. If I, if I try to sow seed, they'll blow all over the place, and they won't land in the right spot, and... I better not plant today. Well, maybe it's going to blow tomorrow too. Maybe you're never going to wind up thinking the weather's good enough for you to get off your lazy behind and go plant. And he that regards the clouds shall not reap. Well, it's liable to rain, so I guess I better not go out and take care of the crop. I better not harvest. It's going to rain. In other words, excuses. Well, now there's times when the wind is blowing too hard. There's times when it is going to rain. So you don't need to be stupid. 
but don't make excuses for yourself as to why you don't be responsible and get things done. As you know not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, there, there are mysteries on this earth, and scientists try to figure out what causes this and how that works. They might observe uh, a baby growing in a womb with the technical equipment they have today, but they don't know what makes it grow. They don't know what makes it do what it does. The mysteries of God are far beyond our comprehension. And we need to learn as much as we can about God, because He's the one that makes everything work. He knows what does work and what does not work. Human beings obviously don't know what works best, because look at the turmoil that we have on earth today. <clears throat> oh, God is greater than we are by far. And hearing Him, trusting Him, is where wisdom begins. True knowledge. Verse 6, In the morning sow your seed, shall prosper, either this or that, or whether they both shall be good. So he says, if you don't plant, if you don't do, if you don't work, you're not going to achieve success. Uh, we have trouble knowing, you know. If, if I do this, will it prosper? Will this be a good business? Will it make a living for me? Or will it fail? You know, people have ideas all the time. <coughs> some of those ideas are good ideas and some are bad ideas. But if you don't do anything, nothing ever good will come. You've got to take some risks. You've got to do some things. Be willing to work. Be willing to sow your seed. And uh, some of it will work and some of it won't work. In business, years ago, when I was in business for myself most of the time, or all the time actually, for many years, uh, I tried some projects that worked very, very well. And others that didn't do so hot. I found, though, that if I thought something through myself and did it, <coughs> I had a better idea of my capacity and what I could do and could not do. And most of the time, if it was my idea and I worked it out myself, it went well. Where I got in trouble most of the time is when I worked with somebody else or took their idea and said, let's go do it, and it wouldn't work, and didn't work, partly maybe for failure on my part, maybe partly on theirs. But when it's somebody else's project, something they've thought about, and not something I've internalized and thought through, then I haven't analyzed what could go wrong, and then it does. So you need to think through things and how it will wind up for you, and if you have partners with the world, uh, God says don't even go there. And partners in the church usually don't work either. Why? God said every man should have his own vine and fig tree. He intended each man to have his own rural area to farm, to raise animals, to provide his own living on his own land. That's what God originally intended for most people to do. 
And when we get away from our own vine and fig tree and making our own way in life and depend on others, we usually wind up in trouble. God didn't intend us to live that way. He wanted us to be independent and to do our own thing. Then if you make a mistake, you're the one that suffers. If you work for a corporation, the corporation makes a mistake, you suffer for their mistake. So it's better to suffer for your own than somebody else's, generally. So, he's giving advice here to people that are living more in an ideal situation. And most of us in our modern industrialized society do not live in a good situation. And it has its frustrations. But he intends us to all stand on our own, to sow our own seed, to reap our own crop. Now, that isn't even possible for most of us in this world today, in the kind of society that we have. Uh, or if it is possible, it's not easy to do. Just like God intended the woman to be the take, caretaker of the home and to rear the children and not to be in the workplace. But our society and culture has made it so that it's almost impossible for a family to live on one salary. So, women are, in that sense, almost forced into the workforce. Uh, not the best situation, not what God intended the woman's role to be, but what Satan and his culture and society has forced on us. And how to get back to that which God originally intended is sometimes very, very difficult, or even impossible to do in this society. That's why we pray, Thy kingdom come, so things can be the way that they're supposed to be. Verse 7, Truly the light is sweet, and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. Yes, we like the daytime, because we can see to get around and do things, and the sun warms us, and so on. Uh, walking in the light is better than walking in the dark. You stumble and fall in the dark, and uh, in the light you can see what you're doing. And that's true of spiritual and light and darkness. But if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that comes is temporary. You can enjoy walking in the sun. You can enjoy it when you feel blessed or when you feel like you've got a nickel in your pocket. Things are going pretty well for you. You like those days. But he says, yeah, consider that and enjoy the days that you have walking in the sun. But don't forget, there will also be dark days. There will be times when things are not going well. Times when there's pain and affliction and persecution and trouble and difficulty. And there'll be many. You, you won't walk, be walking in the sunshine singing a little sunshine song all the time. There'll be a lot of dark days. And realize it's all temporary and what you're going through uh, will also pass. But that's the way life is. So don't be too perplexed when trouble comes. And he tells Christians in particular that this is true, but God will deliver us. Be chastened and learn by it and all those things. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart 
uh, cheer you in the days of your youth and walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. Uh, when you're young, you feel full of energy, full of adventure, want to do this, want to do that. Let's go climb a mountain. Let's, let's do this or something else. Things that when you get older, you might not want to do. Uh, I've noticed that mountains that I used to look at are a lot steeper now than they used to be. And they're a lot taller than they used to be. They're, they're, they're just a whole lot harder to get up than they used to be. I've noticed that. I don't really think it was the mountain that got steeper or taller. Uh, I got smaller and weaker. So he says, you can rejoice in your youth and in your strength and enjoy being able to get around well. But know you, understand you, even as a youth, that all these things God will bring into judgment. You may have strength, you may have energy, you may have desires, you may live a good way, you may live a wrong way. So he says, use your exuberance, your youth, and your strength wisely because God is going to judge you someday on what you did with all that energy and strength. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. So, we don't need to go around feeling, and my, my, uh, my margin says anger, not sorrow. Remove anger from your heart. Don't be an angry person. Uh, anger doesn't do you any good. Your anger is usually pointed at someone else. And your anger does not hurt them nearly as much as it hurts you. So remove anger from your heart. Don't be angry at others. Don't go through life with a chip on your shoulder. And put evil away from your flesh. So even in your youth and exuberance and excitement, live a right way. Because it will all be taken into account later on. Knight should have had the chapter break back at verse 9 of the previous chapter because he introduces this subject he's talking about here in chapter 12 and verse 9. He says, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth. You may be young and strong and think you have the world by the tail, but think about God when you're young. While the evil days come not... Now the years draw near when you shall say, I have no pleasure in them. You know, there's a time in a person's life when they are full of pain and creakiness and arthritis and heart trouble and stomach trouble and lung trouble and back trouble and brain trouble and all kinds of trouble. And life is not very pretty anymore. It isn't much fun anymore. It's full of pain and frustration and discouragement. Can't do the things you used to do. And you even reach the point where you just as soon be dead as to live, finally. Because life has become such a pain and such a burden and so much trouble that it just isn't worth it anymore. So he says, you need to think about it while you're young, that this life has an end. You're not going to always be strong and young and powerful and immortal as you think you are. <coughs> Any of us who are older 
think about death a whole lot more now than we did when we were 20, I'll guarantee you. Because we never know the day we might fall over. You weren't about to fall over when you were 20 or 25, 30 years old, for the most part. You might do something stupid and fall, but not fall over. But when you get old, you realize the days are growing dimmer and less of them. So think about that. Think about the fact that there is judgment uh, someday that's coming, and live your life accordingly even when you're young. Because it will come, as verse 2 says, While the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. So, seems like all sunshine and roses when you're young, and everything in life is going to be beautiful, and you're going to have a wonderful, idyllic life. As I said earlier about the song, wrong, you're going to have troubles, trials, tribulations, uh, failures in life. Things will not always go well. So he's describing the end of life now in verse 3. In the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble. You used to walk with strength, with energy, but then you get to the place where your hands shake, your feet shake, your head shakes. You tremble. And the strong men shall bow themselves. You're all bent over with osteoporosis or, or breaks or bad muscles and you can't hold yourself up anymore. The grinders cease because they are few. My Aunt Margin says the grinders fall because they grind little. You just can't do what you used to do. I, I hear old people, including myself, lament sometimes. I just can't do what I used to do. I can't do it for as long. I can't accomplish as much when I do it. I'm slower. I get tired quicker. <coughs> so... You don't grind as much or work as much because you don't have the energy or the strength to do it. And those that look out of the windows be darkened. You start getting cataracts. You start getting all kinds of problems. You start going blind. Uh, you don't see like you used to. Look out the window and you don't even see the light hardly. It's getting darker. The doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low. Too old to grind much, so... You grind slowly, and you don't make as much noise doing it as you used to. And he shall rise up at the voice of the bird. You get so old, you can't even sleep good anymore. Remember how you used to sleep in, and now the first time you hear a bird sing, you're awake. Uh, you can't sleep when you go to bed, and then you wake up too early. A lot of old people can't sleep very well. They have too much pain. It hurts. So you keep turning over trying to find a comfortable place to lay. And you finally get where you hurt so bad, you just get up when the birds get up at dawn. <laughs> can't, can't lay in bed anymore. It hurts. i got to get up. Well, he's talking about end of life here. Also when you shall be afraid of that which is high. You used to climb a ladder with alacrity and energy and didn't fear when you got on top of the ladder. But now you don't want to step up on a curb for fear you'll fall off of it. Fears shall be in the way. You get where you're afraid of a lot of things because you're, you're, uh, you're weak, you're trembly, you, you, you can't get around. Security becomes one of your biggest issues. 
The almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall be a burden. You have an almond tree out there, and man, it has lots of almonds on it, and they're ready to harvest, but you're afraid to get on the ladder. <laughs> you know, can't do what you used to do, and even the grasshopper will be a burden. It's eating my plants, and I'm too tired, too lazy to go out there and pick it off the tomatoes, so it eats your tomatoes. Desire shall fail. You get to the point, nah, I just don't want to do anything. I don't want to do that. Let's go to town. Let's go shopping. Ah, I don't feel like it today. I have people here in this room who are equating very, very well with this. <laughs> you know? Ah, oh, well. Or did I tell you that one I, I saw recently? I think I did. Where somebody is so lazy, so tired, so old, so worn out, but they hear a strange noise in the end of the house and think, oh, I ought to get up and check that out and see if a burglar's get in. And then they say, eh, I've had a good run. <laughs> Too lazy to get up and see if you're about to be killed. Kind of goes along with what Solomon's saying here. <coughs> so desire even fails. Because man goes to his long home. And the mourners go about the streets. Your long home is your dirt sleep. Uh, your long home is your six-foot-long one that you get buried in. <clears throat> That's where you're headed. <clears throat> so when you're when you're in your youth, think about these things. Or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. In other words. Everything begins to break down. They called it the golden years, and yeah, it's the years of golden teeth, because uh, the ones you had rotted out. But nothing works anymore. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return to God who gave it. So this body is human, it's temporal, it only lasts roughly 70 years, and then it begins to deteriorate in the grave and turn to dust. But the memory of you, the character, the overcoming, the growth, the good part of you, and the bad, goes back to God who stores it until the resurrection. doesn't know anything. It just goes to God. Ecclesiastes, uh, or I'm, I'm thinking of Ezekiel 18.4 and Ezekiel 18.20, about how the dead know nothing. So when you die... You're inert. You know nothing, but God keeps a recording, a CD, if you will, of you that can be reactivated with a spirit body or even a physical body for a time in the great white throne judgment. So think about these things when you're young. You're going to be old and decrepit someday, too. Then you're going to look back and say, what did I accomplish? What did I do? Is what I am worth saving? Would God look at me and say, I want that one? Or will He look at me and say, why would I want that? Verse 8, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Again, you could substitute temporary. It, it has no lasting essence except that which is worth saving by God. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. 
Yes, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. So Solomon says, yeah, my life is almost over here. He was an old man when he wrote this, obviously. And uh, I've done a lot of stupid, foolish things. I try to remember what we read in the first part of this book about how he tried this and tried that and tried everything. Anything he imagined, he tried. Whether it be good or evil, sin or not, he tried it. He did it. And then he realized it all means nothing uh, because I'm going to die and it will all be gone. But he had enough sense and enough wisdom that he, he tried to impart to those who would read it later on uh, what is good and what is bad. Because here was somebody who was in a unique position. You and I have not had the opportunity to do everything that Solomon did to the extent and the degree to which he did it. He tried it all. He was the most adventuresome person who ever lived, if you will. There was no adventure he did not try. Now, a lot of people dream of adventure, but never have any, or have very few or small ones. But Solomon had the capacity, the wealth, everyone at his call, to do anything he imagined. So he did it all. And then he realized that generations come, generations go, and people will not, not learn, and they'll go through the same old mistakes I made. So he had enough wisdom and enough caring left in himself that he decided to put these thoughts on paper for us. You know, if you read something ahead of time and it prevents you from doing something stupid, uh, it was worth the read, wasn't it? The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, the right words to say. And that which was written was upright, even words of truth. So he thought carefully what he wrote down here. It's not just from a figment of his imagination or a sudden inspiration, if you will. But he thought it through and says, What can I pass on that is worthwhile? The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assembly, which are given from one shepherd. So he's saying, I hope here that I'm goading you. What does it mean when you goad someone? You push at them. You try to get them to do a certain thing. If you want a cow loaded into a truck... You get something and poke them from the rear so that going forward seems less painful than standing where they are. So he says, I'm giving wise words here and they should be pushing you. They should be coming alive to you in such a way that they will affect your life and the way you live, the way you think. So if somebody is wise and they know what should be done and you are stupid and foolish and are making mistakes, then they come along and try to help you so that you don't keep repeating stupidity. And they're like nails fastened by the master of assembly. Why do you nail something? So it'll stay in place. 
so it'll be where it ought to be instead of falling off. What do we do? If nobody nails us up in the right spot, we tend to fall, don't we? We tend to come unglued. We tend to do our thing. So he says, I'm, I'm trying to put some nails in you here to hold you in place, to help you with your thinking, help you with your focus, so you don't get derailed and do some dumb, stupid, foolish things. And further, by these, my son, be admonished. So let it push you, let it teach you, learn by it. He says, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. <coughs> I find that to be true. I am not, by nature, a scholar. I like to read. I've always liked to read. In fact, I'd rather read most of the time than I had watch a stupid television, which I, I shut mine off. I don't even have TV anymore because I never turned them on. Uh, so they're not, don't even have it. That doesn't mean that I'm saying you shouldn't have a TV. There are certain things on TV that are good, and certain things it's okay to watch. And there are certain things I wouldn't mind watching, but it's not worth the price uh, of over $100 a month to have the TV here when I turn it on maybe once every six months. So it's just not something I want. I'd rather read than I had to watch a TV. For the most part, I've always been that way. I read a lot as a kid. But... Study, for the sake of study, can be a weariness of the flesh. And there are certain things I don't like to read. <laughs> you know, some things I like to read, other things I don't. But you can write books and you can read books from now on. But living is what is important. How you live is more important than studying all the time. You know, there are people that study a lot and never seem to learn anything from it. They keep doing the same old stuff over and over and over with the same old attitudes. But they study, they study, they study. Sometimes we study for the sake of study or because we think it's smart and intelligent or because we think others will be impressed by what we know. But if it doesn't do us any good and it doesn't change our life, what's the point? He's talking about life here. If you read something, it ought to be something, for the most part, I mean, you can read for entertainment at times, but something that is going to help you change some things. You know, you can read the Bible three, four hours a day, or more if you choose to, and have it not do you any good. You really can. That's why we're told, be you doers, not just hearers of the Word. There are people, as I've said before, who have memorized the whole Bible. They can quote it to you word for word, all the way through without any notes. They may have written books and books of commentaries, but they've never learned what it means and how to live it. And even if they did, they haven't lived it. We understand a great deal about the plan and the way of God having His Spirit to help us understand what the Bible means. But understanding and living it are two different things. You can read books and you can read the Bible. But if you don't put it into practice, all you've done is wear your eyes out and it's a weariness of the flesh. So he says, what you read isn't the key. 
What you write isn't the key. It's what you do. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole man. All that he's been saying here about perspective and the vanity and the shortness of human life and the perspective of humanity is, when it's all said and done, fear God and keep His ways. That's the whole man. Beauty of is in italics in my Bible, and it wasn't in there. If you want to be a whole man, a successful man, an upright man, to have lived a life that is worthwhile, fear God and keep His commandments. Then things will tend to go good and go right for you, and the opportunity to be in His kingdom will be greatly enhanced by the fact that you have paid attention to God. Why? For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. God knows everything that goes on in your heart and mind. He knows what you do, but He also knows what you think. And a little birdie tells God. He can read your mind. He doesn't even need the little birdie. He knows every thought that goes through your head. If He counts the hair on your head, He also counts the thoughts that go through your head. Because the thoughts are more important than the hairs on top. So, whether you're young or whether you're old, always keep in mind an awe and a fear and a concern about God because you're going to be judged someday as to whether you are to live forever and ever in the kingdom of God or whether you will go into the lake of fire and be dead and forgotten. That's what it all comes down to. So this life is a test and a trial ground. It doesn't last long, and the things you do in it, for the most part, are futile because it will end. So do something that is worthwhile, treasure in heaven, that God will want to preserve. Think about it that way. Is what I'm thinking right now something that God would preserve? Is what I'm doing right now something that God would want in His kingdom and say, I want that to go on forever and ever? <laughs> you know? When you put it in that perspective, you think, hmm, maybe I better change what I'm thinking and doing because this isn't something eternal. It isn't something that has value that will last. So let me be thinking something that has value that God would want to preserve. Think on these things.